I am not ready for that yet. You can take the boy out of the south, but you can't take the south out of the boy, I guess. Turn with me to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. Last week we looked at the healing of the lame man at the at the pool of Bethesda. <clears throat> this morning we're going to see the witness of Christ's relationship with his father. Before we uh, read the scripture, let's uh, pray and ask the Lord to bless this time in his word together. Our Father, we come to you this morning thanking you for the blessing of being here together to worship corporately together. Truly, we are not deserving of any of your goodness or your grace, the mercy which you have extended to us We deserved punishment, but you gave us blessing instead in Christ. So we thank you that we can come and and, uh, lift up our Lord. We thank you that uh, you have given us your word that we can be ministered to in our souls by it. And we ask this morning that you would do that for us as we open it up and see what it says to our hearts and our lives. Glorify yourself, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Beginning at verse 17, Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes on him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Now this section of scripture 
goes through verse 47. And we're only going to just touch part of it this morning. As we begin, I want you to imagine yourself in a large crowd of people who are shaking their fists and speaking with hostile and loud voices at you, making threats and closing in around you, you are alone. There's no one there to stand up for you or to protect you. You have said some things and exposed some things in this crowd of people that makes them feel discomfort. And they are now angry and their words are angry toward you. They are threatening you with violence and harm. Do you feel the fear? Do you feel the anguish that could take place in such a scene as that? This is exactly the display that Jesus was enduring when he was being persecuted by the Pharisees whose persecution toward him was intensifying to the point that they wanted to take him and kill him. I've never been in such a situation as that. I remember a situation when I was in the military shortly after shortly after I became a believer. A group of us of about maybe 15 went on a temporary assignment down to El Paso, Texas, there along the border, and we were in joint maneuvers with the Army. And I was gone for a couple of weeks Hadn't been saved very long. One night, my roommate, who was a a little older than me at the time, he was married, had, I think, two kids. Uh, He was a decent sort of fella. Woke me up in the middle of the night. It must have been near midnight. I was asleep. He woke me up and said, there's a meeting. We've got to go to a meeting upstairs to one of the other guy's room. We got up there. It wasn't a meeting at all. It was a drinking party. I felt very uncomfortable. And I said to the one who was in charge or the one who, the top sergeant who was with us, I said, I'm going back to my room. He said, no, 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 you're not. You're staying. You're going to drink with us. Well, it was at that point that I refused. And it was at that point that he said, I'll pour it down your throat. Well, I braced myself because I figured he, you know, they had already been drinking for a while and I figured that he meant what he said. 
And my, the fellow that I was rooming with, his name was Michael LaPlante. He stepped up. He was a little older than most of them there. And he said, leave him alone. At that point, I left, went back to my room. But I remember what it felt like to be one in a crowd that stood against what the crowd wanted. This was what Jesus was facing, except with much more intensity. This wasn't just, I'm going to pour alcohol down your throat. This was, we're going to kill you. Jesus and his disciples have made their journey to Jerusalem for the feast. Jesus goes to the pool of Bethesda where he heals a man that had been lame for and ill for 38 years. We saw last time that these events took place on the Sabbath. That's what verse 16 ends with. These things were done on the Sabbath. This work of healing set the stage for open persecution and hostility for Christ. And now that aggression would only escalate. From now on, we see that the Jews plot over and over how that they might kill Jesus. Their hatred for him intensifies. Jesus would not capitulate to the man-made rules of the Pharisees. In fact, he did just the opposite on many occasions. We see him in Matthew chapter 12, healing the hand of a man who was, uh, his hand was withered and deformed. And he did that on the Sabbath in the synagogue. We see him in Matthew, in Mark chapter 2, as he states, that he is the Lord over the Sabbath. I'm sure that that did not set well with the Pharisees. Jesus calls out the Pharisees in Luke chapter 13 for their, their wanting, caring more about helping their own animals than helping someone, a human being that is in need. He called them hypocrites. He did these things purposefully to show the fake, self-righteous, and self-deceived illusions of the Pharisees' spiritual condition. They thought they were doing God's work. How many times do we hear that in our, in our days? From not only unbelieving people who call themselves Christians, but from other religious groups saying and claiming that they're doing the work of God, whatever that God may be called. Isaiah said it well. God speaking to the prophet said in chapter 29, verses 13 and 14, The Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their heart is far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. God says that their wisdom would perish 
and their discernment would be hidden from them. And so it was. The further the Israelites turned from God, the less they knew about Him and the more they concentrated on themselves. They had no discernment whatsoever. It sounds very much like our day. Real, the real purpose of this miracle at the pool of Bethesda was to show that Jesus was doing the will of the Heavenly Father and that He was equal to Him in His person. <coughs> We're talking about the deity of Christ. We're talking about Jesus being equal with the Heavenly Father in several ways depicted to us in this passage of Scripture. The first one is that He was equal to the Father in His person. This was a stark contrast to the Pharisees' claim as to His identity. The Pharisees called Him a Samaritan. In John chapter 8, verse 48, they said he was demon-possessed. In John 7, 20 and 8, 52, they claimed that he was insane. In John 10, verse 20, and of illegitimate birth in chapter 8, verse 41. But the worst, the worst thing they said about Jesus was that The miracle working power that he had, the things that he did, were from Satan. Chapter 12, verse 24. Which, by the way, is an extremely blasphemous thing to say. For Jesus did all that he did in the power of the Spirit. And to claim that he did the things he did by the power of Satan is certainly blasphemous. The Pharisees could not have been more wrong about Jesus. Their allegations were purely motivated by their own fallen, sinful desires. Ezekiel describes them correctly in Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 31. Speaking to the Jews, God says, They come to you, As people come, they sit before you as my people. They hear what you say, but they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths they act. Their heart is set on gain. Again, sounds just exactly like our day. The whole world seems to be set on gain of one kind or another. They hear what God says. Even Christian people hear what God says. They see what God says from the Scripture. They hear it each week as they go to their churches, but they will not do it. They're concerned more with their own personal gain than with their own spiritual condition. People are no different today. They still make their bogus claims. And they blaspheme the name of Christ, who is very God in the flesh. MacArthur writes, 
Jesus assumed the prerogatives of deity. He claimed to have control over people's eternal destinies, to have control over and authority over divinely ordained institutions of the Sabbath, to have the power to answer prayer, and to have the right to receive worship, faith, and obedience that was due to God alone. He assumed the right to forgive sins, something that shocked his opponents correctly understood because only God can forgive sins. Jesus also called God's angels his angels, God's elect his elect, and God's kingdom his kingdom. Remember the words of the Samaritan woman? She said, when Messiah comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I am speaking with you am he. When the high priest asked Jesus who he was, if he was the Messiah, he plainly said, I am. Mark 14, verses 61 62. The Lord's favorite title concerning himself was the title of Son of Man. Jesus called himself the Son of Man. The Jews would have been very familiar with this title. In fact, he calls himself that more than any other title in the New Testament. We see it in all four Gospels. It speaks of both his humanity and his deity. And it coincides with Daniel's description of who the Son of Man is. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel 7. Daniel, in his visions that God gave him, saw something of great notoriety. It happened at night. Notice verse 13, chapter 7, verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. There's no mistake who this is. This is the Christ. This is the Messiah. This is the Son of God, the one who was to come, the one whom the Jews were looking for. Jesus' claim to be the Son of Man meant that He was God's Son, not just by natural creation or birth, but by the very nature of God. He was God's Son. This would, have, this would have struck deeply at the heart of the Pharisees who considered themselves the sons of God. And they took hateful exception to Jesus' claim 
as the only unique Son of God. You see, that's the problem. It's one thing to say that we're sons of God, children of God. It's another thing to say that I am the only unique one. That's what Jesus was claiming. When he called himself the Son of Man, when he called himself the Son of God, when he said to them, I am, they they did not miss that. That's why it says in verse 18, they wanted all the more to kill him because he was calling himself God's son, making himself equal in nature with, with God. Chapter 19, verse 7, the Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself He made himself the son of God. This was what they said to Pilate. Our law says he must die because he called himself the son of God. Matthew chapter 27, verse 43. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And so Jesus could make the claim in John chapter 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. And in chapter 12, verse 45, he who sees me sees the one who sent me. And in John 14, verse 9, he who has seen me has seen the Father. All of these, all of these things put together come down upon the head of Jesus as the one who claimed to be God in the flesh. And indeed he was. In his person, there was no difference in essence between Christ and the Father in heaven. No difference. Athanasius, in the 4th century, century, fought the, the battle over the deity of Christ. And that battle is still being waged now, today, for there are many who claim that Jesus was not truly God in the flesh. John says that all of those who say such a thing are antichrists. They live with the spirit of antichrist. Now notice verse 18. The Jews were not content with simply discrediting Jesus or slandering him. You see, this is, this is what happens in crowds. They don't want to just slander or discredit. They want him dead. They want to silence him. They, they don't want him, his, they don't want his words to be heard any, anymore, anywhere. So now, you're back in the crowd. The crowd is surrounding you and they are now so worked up, so filled with hate, 
that they're crying for your death. And they want to carry it out now. See, crowds, crowds can be whipped up into a frenzy very quickly. And they can do the most dastardly things. As we have seen in recent times. These Pharisees are out for blood. They want Jesus' blood. Now notice the response of Jesus to their persecution. First, in verses 17 and 18, Jesus says that he is equal to God in his person. Now, in verse 19, he claims to be equal with God in his works. Notice what he says. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son of the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. There is huge, a huge sticker in this verse. Notice His response. It is a response that claims that His works are equal to the Father's works. In other words, Jesus and the Father, according to Him, are working in tandem or jointly. They are united. They are in harmony with each other in their works. Now, if Jesus was not who he claimed to be, would he not have corrected any misunderstandings so that the Jews would not think something that was untrue? This is what many did in the New Testament when they were misunderstood. They made clarification. No, you don't understand. Turn with me to a few passages. First is Acts chapter 14. Paul and Barnabas come to the Lyconians. Paul gathered up some sticks for the fire. A snake came out of the bundle and bit him, a very poisonous snake, and he didn't fall down and die. Now pick it up at verse 11. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, and they wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard it, they tore their garments and rushed into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. 
And we bring good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made heaven and earth and sea and all that is in them. See, correct the misunderstanding. We're not gods. What you saw happen when the snake bit me, Paul says, reading between the lines, is God in heaven protecting me. He's the one that made heaven and earth. Why are you going to sacrifice to us? We're just men. Something we would all do well to remember. Turn to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19. John had some misunderstandings corrected. Verse 10, the angel shows John some very spectacular things. And John falls down, verse 10, I fell down at his feet, at the angel's feet. And he said to me, you must not do that. Can't you see that? I can just say, no, no, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Don't worship me. Worship God. Flip over quickly to chapter 22. Look at verses 8 and 9. Again, this happens. I, John, am the one who heard and saw. Verse 8. Saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. And he said to me, you must not do that. I wonder if it's the same angel. I can just envision it being the same angel. He says, didn't I tell you before not to do that? (laughs) I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and those who keep the words of this book worship God. Hermeneutical, Hermeneutical principle. If God says something more than once in Scripture, pay attention. Second time the angel in three chapters has said it. Don't worship me, worship God. So if Jesus were not who he said he was, he would have no doubt corrected the misunderstanding. Oh, you misunderstand me. I'm not saying I'm God's son. Don't worship me. I'm not calling for people to worship me. That's what he would have said. But he didn't do that. In fact, he did just the opposite. He Instead of clarifying any confusion that might have been, Jesus makes more claims of equality with God that are unmistakable. He gets their attention with emphatic language. That emphatic language is found in the words, truly, truly. It's like us saying, hey, listen to me. He does this with complete equality and yet complete submission to the Father's will. So that all that the Father did, Jesus did as well. He followed the Father's lead. This is the essence of following someone. 
When you see what the one you are doing or, or you're following, when you see what they do, you do the same thing likewise. This is why Jesus said to his disciples, follow me. There's more in that than just trailing behind him. It means follow me, do what I do, live like I live, act like I act. So Jesus did this with the Father. And yet he did it within his own personality. He willed to do God's bidding in himself. He was not like a robot seeing the Father do this and then mindlessly doing the same thing like a robot would. He wasn't programmed to do them. He did them in deep obedience to the Father. Using His mind. Being in submission to the Father's will. The application, I think, is crystal clear. Because you see, we think, we think that we're the captains of our fate. We want what we want. We want to do what we want to do. And so many times we're not interested in being obedient to God. We just want what we want. And we want it now. We want to run our lives. We want to make the decisions. But listen, God does not want you or me to just simply be uh, robots. Mindlessly following and acquiescing like some robot would do. That's not what he wants. It's not the way he made us. This is, this is why it's so important to understand the difference between Christianity and the Eastern religions. The Eastern religion says just, just that. You're just a robot. Empty your mind out. Just empty your mind out and, and just by rote do these things. Click, 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 just like a robot would do them. No, no thinking through it. Nothing just, just rote. Just over and over and over again. But for the Christian, emptying the mind is not an option. Though some of our minds are probably more empty than others, emptying ourselves in our minds is not an option. That's an Eastern concept, an Eastern religious concept. What we're supposed to do is fill our minds with God's truth so that we can will to do God's, God's bidding, God's work, God's be obedient to Him. Fill our minds with His truth. And that is so different from other religious thought. We are to surrender our pursuits to willingly take up His. And that is what Jesus did.
Now, how does that prove his deity? How does that prove his equality with God in the works that he did? It proves it because no one, get it carefully, it proves because no one could possibly and perfectly do all that God does unless he is God himself. And Jesus is the only one who's ever done that. All of the works that Jesus did, he did perfectly. Why? Because he was God and his father was doing the works as well. Turn to John chapter 17, just a few pages back. And look what he says in John 17. And when we get to John 17, there's a whole series that I've already preached years ago from that chapter. But we'll go through it again. And there will be a lot more there that we missed last time. Verse 3. This, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and... See the word and? That connects God with Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. All the work that Jesus did, he accomplished in the Spirit, in tandem with and in joint with the Father. Look at verse 21. He says that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us who, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now, that word back in verse 4, that word accomplished means to fully accomplish with perfection. To finish thoroughly or entirely. It's understood as making something perfect or complete. In other words, only God could accomplish these works perfectly and completely. And Jesus claimed in his high priestly prayer that he had accomplished all of the things that the Father gave him to do perfectly and completely. But there's another angle. Here it is. If Jesus is doing all of these works in conjunction with the Father, then it was the Father who healed the man at the pool of Bethesda as well as Jesus. Do you see the import of that statement? you see why that's important? The Jews were not only persecuting Jesus... By saying that he broke the Sabbath. By claiming that he was equal with God. But they were persecuting God the Father as well. Because it was the Father who healed the man at the pool too. That changes things a bit, does it not? Because now these these Jews who have become very angry, are angry because Jesus has just said to them, I did this work on the Sabbath, but I want you to know that it was my Father who did that work too. 
And they're perse- if you're persecuting me, you're persecuting him. That's what made them so very angry. That's why they wanted all the more to kill him. Now, why were these works given to the Son of God to do? Well, he tells why in verse 20. He says, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. The Father loves the Son and reveals everything that he is doing To the Son. Now, this is interesting because it is the only time in Scripture that the Father's love for the Son is mentioned in this way. Now, there are certainly other places that that says that the Father loves the Son, but not the same way that it's said here. For example, in John three verse thirty-five. It says, the Father loves the Son, has given all things into His hand. In John 17, verse 26, I have made known to them your name and will continue to make it known that the love which you have, with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, and behold, a voice came down from heaven which said, this is my beloved Son, my loved Son in whom I'm well pleased. So, God the Father certainly claimed and said that He loved the Son. But in every one of those that I just quoted, the word for love there is the word agapao or agape. It is a word that speaks of a decided love, a love that you choose to put on another, regardless of the other. But the word that's used here in verse 20 is not the word agape or agapao. It's the word phileo. Only time in scripture that this particular word is used speaking of the father's love for the son. The word phileo is translated love, but it's a love that 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 has feelings and emotions it's a love it's a love of affection warmth and consideration it's a love you feel agape is a love you decide in other words the father has a feeling of consideration and and Affection for his son. Now I tried to figure out just how this could be understood. Because this verb in verse 20, love, is in the present tense. Which means that this is a continual thing. God is constantly and continually He has feelings of affection and warmth toward his son all the time. And they are never interrupted. That's why Jesus said 
In verse 24 of 17, I desire that they whom you have given me may be where I am, that you may see, they may see the glory you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. That's the word agape there. So the father has this great affection for his son because of the works that the son is doing. See, that's the context. Why does the why does he say that the father has feelings of warmth and affection toward the son in this place and nowhere else? It is because of the works that Jesus is doing that show he is equal to the father. If we can bring that down to where we live, it would be like the joy and loving affection of an earthly father as he watches his son do something and accomplish something that's good. He stands back and he sees what his son is doing. Uh, maybe maybe it's building something. Maybe it's, maybe it's in a sporting event or uh, maybe it's some deed, some kind deed that his son is doing for someone else. But the father is stand, this father is standing back. He's watching his son and he gets great joy and, and feelings of warmth and affection for his son in that thing that his son is doing. That's the idea. He's taking pleasure in it. Now, is that not comforting to us? To know that at the center of God's heart, there is a loving affection, a kindness, a consideration that is part of his nature. Oh, God has decided to love us with agape love. But agape love doesn't have to have feelings behind it. It decides to love. Regardless of the one that is being loved. It it decides to love. But phileo... Philo has, has the feelings with it. It has the warmth. It has the, the affection... And that's good for us to know that God loved us and decided to love us, but He loves us beyond that. He loves us with great feelings of affection. And that's the truth that we can take with us. Is to remember that God's affection for you, for His Son, is the same affection that He has for you. God has the same feelings of warm consideration and affection for you that he does for Jesus. Why? Because we are in Christ and Christ is in us. It's not because of us that he loves us that way. Because I'm going to tell you something. In our sin, God didn't love us that way. He didn't have warm feelings of affection toward us that way. He hated us. Because of our sin. But when Christ redeemed us by his blood and we were placed in Christ. God not only chose to love us. But God had great feelings of affection toward us because of Jesus Christ.
So as Christians, we're in him and he's in us and God loves us because of that. Truthfully, there was nothing else to love about us. There was nothing really to love love us for. Thank God he loved us in spite of us. And now he loves us because of Christ. Quite frankly, this is cause for us to love Christ and to love the Father in the same way. Not only do we choose to love Christ, but we want to love him because he loved us first. Jesus is equal to God in his person and in his works. And we will see other reasons that he gives in this passage of equality with the Father. As we progress through it. Let's pray together. Our Father we do thank you for this Lord's Day. Thank you that we can come and worship. Thank you that we can open your book. And and be ministered to our souls by it. We pray that you would receive glory. uh, From today's service. uh, Our singing of our praises to you. our, Our giving. Our prayers. Our ministry in the word. Lord we We want you to be glorified through it all. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't have too many announcements. I don't have any announcements really to make.